If you've been tracking with us, we just finished a series, uh, Did God Really Say That? And um, where we're going over the next few weeks is uh, this week and next week, we are going to revisit core values and our mission statement. Um, and then we'll do two of the core values today and our mission statement, part of it today. Next week, we'll do our final core value. We have three of them. And the third one will be done next Sunday, but we're having a baptism next Sunday as well. Four people who have identified themselves with Christ and have confessed Him as Lord and Savior are being baptized. If you don't know, there's a baptism will take right under here. Two sides going down, full tank, full immersion, uh, as the Scriptures declare. We are uh, going to have four people come up, and uh, testimonies will be given, and they'll be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. Just as Matthew 28, Jesus commands His people to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the, and of the Holy Spirit. So that's going to happen on the 11th. And then September 18th, as we've been saying, we'll launch into our two service, 9 and 11, uh, on the 18th. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump back into the gospel according to John. We've been studying that together for about, mm, I think it was about nine months. Um, we're in chapter 10, uh, verse 22. We'll pick up the gospel according to John. That's our series, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That series is called The Invisible Made Visible. Christ, the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh dwells among us, lived a perfect life, and dies an atoning death. And that series is called The Invisible Made Visible. We'll pick that up on September 18th. So we thought, as we got a couple of weeks in between the series and we're launching a second service, we would want everyone to know that we're not changing what we're doing, we're not changing our core values or our mission statement. We're simply making room for you to be praying and asking God to open your mouth to share the gospel in love and generosity and then demonstrating in love and generosity and then declaring the gospel to your neighbors and your friends, your co-workers, uh, the people that you see in this fear of influence, severe influence that God has placed you in, um, that God would, we'd make room and that the kingdom of God would press on. We would work, of course, living with God on mission, we're going to talk about today, uh, and making room for people to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what it's about. Uh, making room and, and uh, allowing people to come and hear the good news of the gospel. That's why Pastor Chris mentioned the, the cards. Grab a couple of those cards. They're out on the kiosk um, and start praying. Who can I give this card to? Who can I invite? Who can I share uh, the, the love of the gospel with? Um, remember, you know, God has ordained the means and the ends, and God wants to use you, as, as Romans tells us, you know, that the good news upon the feet of those who preach the gospel, that he wants to use you in a way to share his love and the gospel to a lost and, and broken world, uh, which brings me to our mission statement. Our mission statement, a mission statement, first of all, is, is, is a statement, it's a, it's a short sentence, and you're going to hear my heart today. I hope you do. A mission statement is, is a short statement of our aims and values and core purposes that remain unchanged. This is a mission statement. Hospitals have them and different jobs have a mission statement. This is, this is who we are. This is our aims, our values. Our core values are the distinctives. It is the things that drive us. It's the things that keep us focused on what we're doing here at King's Chapel. Why it really matters here at King's Chapel. But both the, the mission statement and the core values uh, are, are used or, or should be seen as filters to separate that which is important and which is not as important. It is, it is a way that communicates the intentionality of the church, of what we believe we are and what we are doing here at King's Chapel. It not only defines us and drives us, but the core values and our mission statement in this church 
gives us the opportunity to say yes to this ministry, no to that ministry. There are a lot of different things going on. There's a lot of different churches that have different mission statements and core values. This helps us to, get, to keep us on course, to keep us pressing on to that which God has prepared us as a people here at King's Chapel to do. So pastors may come and go, and they have. Methods of ministry change, but core values and mission statements stay the same. So I have up on our, our screen there the mission statement. Very simple. We exist for the glory of God. By living on mission, we talk about that a lot. By living on mission with him and making disciples in gospel-centered Gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. That's our mission statement. And like our mission statement, our core values, they go hand in hand. You have three of them. EIC, we call it. We got a bumper sticker if you're really interested out there. I'll put some out later on. Core value. You have three. Eternity, identity, community. E stands for eternity. It is the gospel redemption. Simple things to remember. E is identity, I, gospel identity, or it should be gospel transformation, I apologize. Gospel transformation. And third, we see community. We'll cover that in two weeks from now. So it's the gospel transformation. Again, I apologize. So what I want to do this morning as we move forward is ask the, answer the question, what does it mean to exist for the glory of God? What do we mean when we say we gather together and we exist for God? Why were we created? And then what happened in the fall? What, we'll look at creation. We'll look at the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and, and, and something happened. And right in the midst of that, not only did the man sin, but God spoke his plan, his plan of salvation and the work of the gospel. We'll look closely at that. And then how does that affect us? How does that change us? How does that transform God's people through the work and the plan of God in our salvation? That's what we're all about. So let's ask the first question, man... Why were we created? We were created to glorify God. We were created to glorify God. And that's the purpose. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, what? God. The scriptures open with the eternal God, creator of all that we see, creator of of humanity, creator of the earth, And he himself, although he has no need in himself, God is complete and fully satisfied in himself. Out of love, he has created us for the primary purpose of bringing him glory. We know that for sure because Isaiah tells us so. Bring my sons from afar, God speaking, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory. Can't get any simpler than that. Whom I formed and made. Psalm 96.3 is an is a imperative. It's not, it's not, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's not. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, eat, drink, or whatever you do, that covers everything, do all for the glory of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's an exposition of biblical truth. The first question in it says, what is the chief end of man? What is it that is the primary pinnacle end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now the word glory, Greek word doxazo, means weight. Literally means weight. Both the Hebrew and the Greek means weight. 
honor, value. So when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about, some of you may not know this, we just talk about glory, we throw glory in songs and everything else, but you maybe don't understand. Maybe you just think it's just singing. It's not just singing. That's part of it, but it's not just singing. Ultimately, God's glory is his infinite and intrinsic value, weightiness, insurpassable, insurmountable worth that he has in himself above everything he created. Okay, his glory is his moral perfection. It's his, it's his greatness, his preeminence, his beauty, his holiness. And we were created, as we see, to bring him glory. We do that by loving him, by, by trusting him, by treasuring him as infinitely valued and worthy above all things. So when you want to bring God glory, that's what we do. He's the highest treasure value in the world. The word worship actually means, maybe you know this, show worth to something. Worship, show worth to something. Paul says, whatever you do, bring glory to God. To show, to express, to display the great infinite value of God to the world. How great and awesome God is. And our response to the, to the glory of God, his weight, his intrinsic, insurmountable beauty, is worship. A life of worship. So we believe here at King Chapel that the most important thing, the most important question for all of mankind is, do you have a relationship with our creator God for the original purpose in which we were created to bring God glory by worshiping him and reflecting his goodness and greatness to the world? The worship and the relationship with God, our creator, is part of what's called the Imago Dei. Some of you heard that before, image and likeness of God. Part of what we were, part of what, why we were created, or how we were created, I should say. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us, we see the Trinity right there, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in his own image, in, his, in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them. The Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, includes the intellect, the will. It includes emotion, but it also includes the fact that we are given uh, responsibility to reflect and to, to represent God. But I believe, first, the Imago Dei, first and foremost, teaches us about who we are as people. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us about who we are as a people. Our identity comes from the value and the dignity that is intrinsic because we are his. We were created by our God. And we bear that image, and that image you see in Genesis 1-2, and now we are, we are in relationship with him, that we have union with him, we have fellowship with him, and we are loved by our creator. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and, he, and what you see in that passage is, is God walking in the midst of them, intimately with Adam and Eve. God is walking with Adam and Eve. There's life. God breathes life into them. There's a place. There's a place of dwelling. There's purpose. There is meaning. They were to cultivate the land, be fruitful and multiply and walk with their creator God. Genesis 1 and 2, if you read that, there's no injustice at that point. There's no racism. There's no hatred, no deformity, no poverty, nothing but the presence of God and the peace of God, the shalom of God, they call it. The spiritual physiological, physical, emotional peace. And when that's happening, Genesis 1 and 2, all that Adam and Eve, all in which God was created, was done and devoted to and experienced in the worship of God. So 
Things like food and creates worship, relationship creates worship, even work. Work's not part of the curse, just so you know. Like, man, I got to go to work. Well, it's part of the Imago Day. Even work creates the worship of God, the praise and the worship of, of the beauty and majesty and, and awesomeness and incalculable worth of God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, I have it up there, very interesting. We did this, we studied through Genesis, I, I, we, we learned this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, put him in the garden of Eden, to what? Work it and keep it. Both Hebrew verbs are used in the temple. Both Hebrew words are used in a temple and in the tabernacle for the duties of the priest. To work means to serve, to, 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 to uh, abad is the, is the Hebrew word, describing the worship and, and the, um, not only to serve, but it says also, what does it say? Um, to keep it. All about serving, loving, worshiping God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, that's what Genesis 1 and 2. So all of activity, man in the garden, described in spiritual service, worship of the one true God, because continual worship is our response. Listen, continual worship is the response to the glory of God. We see him, we sing that song, all that you reveal to us. We see God, we see him through the scriptures, and we see him and we worship, and that's our response to his infinite value, is worship and praise above everything. But something happened. Genesis 3, everything changed. Adam and Eve sins against God, rebels against God, and runs from God. They run, they hide, there is emotional unraveling, there's shame, there's guilt, there's blame, you, you gave them to me. You know, there's all kinds of going on, and we see as the scripture, after Genesis 3, we see deformity, social injustice, we see natural disasters, racism, murder, all kinds of evil. Romans tells us just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that sin and therefore death spread to all men because everyone has sinned. And what we find in Genesis 3 is Adam running from God, running from his presence, and quite honestly, all of us have done that at some point in our life. Run from God. All of us have turned and chose to worship, to value because of sin, created things. I've said this before, let me say it again. All of us in this room and all people who've ever been created are worshipers. That's who you are, that's part of the Imago Dei. God the Father pouring out glory on the Son, the Son pouring out glory on the Father, and he created us worshipers. Not created us to worship, but actual worshipers, part of the Imago Dei. The question becomes not if you worship, but who you worship, what you worship, what you pour your life out for. What wakes you up in the morning? What drives you during the day? What's the purposes and the final conclusion of your life at the end of the day? Why am I living? That in which you worship. We're all worshipers. The question is who and what we worship. And of course, the Imago Dei, that's part of the Imago Dei, but you know, we don't, we don't have, I don't know, maybe you do. You're at home carving an idol. I don't know. You know, a little wooden thing you put up on the thing. I don't know. You see them sometimes in the cars, little bobblehead and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Some people actually bury stuff in their yard when they want to sell their house. All kinds of wild stuff. What we do, we're more sophisticated. We go to stadiums. We worship food, looks, money, sex, relationships, kids. It's much easier. 
I told a story one time, but Mark Driscoll, who went to a, a, a foreign land and walking around, he saw all these idols, and he's like, you know, oh my word, he tells the people, I think it was India, seeing all these idols that were created, and he's just like, I, I mean, can't they see this? And which the Indian pastor turned him and said, you know, when you go to America, that's all we see. Family sitting around a TV. You know, it depends on your culture. All of us have our idols. All of us have the things that we worship. You know what I mean? And it's called idolatry. See, the image of God, the Imago Dei in the garden, created to worship, to, to praise him, to worship him, to be in relationship with him, was marred. It wasn't destroyed when sin entered the world, but it was marred. It was, it was marred, it was stained, it was tainted by sin. So because of sin in our rebellion, we seek to be our own lords, our own saviors, doing whatever we want, seeking to justify our own selves by taking center stage. We find now our value and worth no longer in God, but the things that we want to seek things that we have created. Romans 1 says that we, we, we serve the created things rather than the creator God, who's whoever, whoever is blessed forever, amen. Romans 1. But God, but God had a plan. God had a plan. Let me just go back one. Can you go back one slide, Joe? God had a plan. God's restoring plan. He immediately sees in the fall he immediately sees in the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound, Adam and Eve, the sound of the Lord, and walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's the nature of sin, always separates. They've sinned, now they're separated. And the Lord God called out to man and said, where are you? Now, did God know where Adam was? Yes, of course he did. He wasn't like, oh, looking under rocks and just kind of roaming the garden and wondering where did Adam hide himself. That's not what happened. But why does it say to us in that passage that God was seeking after Adam? Because ever since sin entered the world and man has been separated from God, God is on pursuit. God is on pursuit. He's looking to reconcile with his rebellious creation. And one needs to be reconciled with God. One needs to be brought back into a right relationship with God in order for us to fulfill the very creative purpose in which we were designed, to bring him glory. We can't do so separated from him. So God's on a rescue plan to restore our relationship, to reconcile us back with him. So in the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of separation from God, way back in Genesis 3, God speaks about his plan. He says in Genesis 3.15, right in the middle of chaos, God speaks. And he says, I will. Mark that if you have a Bible. I will, Genesis 3.15. Not I might, not I maybe. We'll see how things turn out. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God gives a promise. It's called the, the uh, Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel. He gives a promise that one day a son's gonna come, a deliverer's gonna come. A redeemer would be sent and although he will be bruised, he will crush and ultimately deliver a deadly blow to Satan, sin, death, and hell. The promise continued from Genesis 3.15 and Adam onward to the covenant made with Abraham, Genesis as well, where God promised in a covenant to Abraham that he will, number one, give him the promised land. 
Number two, he will give him a lineage of many descendants. And number three, not only will he be with Abraham and God's people, but the Lord himself will come. The seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David will come from that line. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one sent. He's the one that came into human history. He identified with us in our humanity yet without sin and died for our sin. He's the seed of the woman. And on the death, although he was bruised, he crushes Satan. God's promise, the New Testament or New Covenant promise was fulfilled and his provision for the salvation and reconciliation of his wayward creation has been done on the cross. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, who died for sin, has reconciled us to God. We put our faith and trust in him, walk with him, become his disciples, learning, worshiping. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and enables us through the gospel to be restored to the purpose of which we were created. And that is the worship of God. Becoming worshiping learners through relationship, ultimately for his glory and our good. We exist for the glory of God. Sin caused us to chase after other things, but God, his love, and his grace had, pursues us, had pursued us and reconciled us. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ. The living God, the creator God, the king of the universe, Jesus, the promised one, dying for sin, run, uh, rising from the dead. So, family, here's the bottom line on this. We are not wandering around. We're not wondering, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? Why are we gathering? What's this all about? We are a gathering of Christ followers who firmly are rooted in the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. He's the only way mankind can be reconciled to God. He is the most important question of your life. Who are you worshiping? The good news is that Christ came and he restored us. He manifested his glory to the world. He revealed his glory in the cross and we are the benefactors of forgiveness of sin. We exist to glorify God. And that brings us to eternity gospel redemption. It's our first core value because it's the most important question. Look what, look what uh, Paul said to the Corinthian church. For I delivered to you, chapter 15, of what's but first important that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. First importance, Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Eternity for us, the E, the big E, is about God's glory. Eternity is about restored relationship to our eternal God. Eternity is about the gospel. Now, we use the term gospel redemption. Eternity, back reconciliation with God. The gospel, Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. We use the word redemption here, part of our core values. Now, the gospel speaks of many, not many, but several different Ways to express salvation. Sometimes the Bible says that we are saved. Sometimes the Bible says that we've been adopted into his family. Sometimes the Bible says that we are reconciled to God. But one of the ways in which the New Testament speaks of salvation often is the word redemption. That's why we have gospel redemption. It's through the redemption. So you may hear different things, but many times it's used in scripture, redemption. We see that in 
Let me go back one. Can I go back one? I'm sorry. Colossians 1.13. I had problems with PowerPoint. I had problems with PowerPoint this morning. Redemption. Colossians 1.13. For he, God the Father, rescues us from the domain of darkness, transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, what? By his grace... As a gift, didn't earn it, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Redemption is not only a New Testament. Redemption has its prototype in the Old Testament. God said in the Old Testament, in Exodus, that he is redeeming his people. When they were in slavery and bondage to the Egyptian Pharaoh, he is... He then says in Exodus, I think it's chapter 3, chapter 6, he says this about their redemption, rescuing them from slavery, rescuing them from uh, Pharaoh, under the slavery of Pharaoh. He says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptian. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's in Exodus, back in the story of, of Moses. See, the rescue in Exodus, if you know the story, Exodus opens to slavery, it ends with worship. Exodus opens up with darkness, chaos, people in slavery. But it ends with the Shekinah glory coming down and filling the tabernacle in the presence of God. That's the story of salvation for us in the New Testament. It's the redeeming work of Christ. In fact, Luke chapter 2, Anna, if you know the prophetess Anna, spent her whole life it says, in the temple. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying. And when Jesus comes up, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Christ to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Paul talks about it in Corinthians, in Galatians, and other passages. Ephesians 1, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see? The redemption, the ransom that Christ buys us back, he pays the debt that all of us owe because of our sin. Societies and cultures have always a place where people have to pay back. There's, there's penalty for when you break their law. That's just the way culture is. That's the way society runs. And you know if you've been hurt deeply, there's a debt that that person owes you. Either forgive them, release them of their debt, or you pay it back. You talk trash. And you, and you hope they get hit by a car. But either way, it's paying back the debt. That's what redemption is about. So God, in love, chose to provide salvation and redemption for us through Christ. For the Son of Man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And because God, Jesus, both God, fully God, fully man, he could pay for man's sin and goes to the cross. And his sinless life is sacrificial and substitutionary death pays that penalty. And he sacrifices himself for our forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 5.2 makes it very clear. Walk in love, he says, Paul, because Christ loved us. Not only did he love us, he gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen, that's what drives us. Peter said it this way, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you're not sure, you're the unrighteous one, he's the righteous one. That he might bring us to God. Not more than that. He brings us to God. Redemption and removal of wrath and salvation, hell, and all the good news is because now in my eternal misery, I find pleasure and beauty and salvation and glory in the cross and all that Christ has accomplished for me on his death. One of my favorite verses 
in all the Bible, and there are a lot of favorite verses, but this has got to be like the top one. I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Even if our gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, forgiveness of sin is veiled, some people can't see it, it's veiled to those who are perishing, because you perish without the gospel. In their case, the ones that are perishing, the ones that have, the gospel has been veiled, in their case, the God of this world, that's, that's the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light, the penetrating beauty, glory, and holiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God, is what that means. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as his servants, right? As Jesus' servants' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, going back to Genesis, has shown that penetrating light gives the light of the knowledge of what? The glory, the incalculable worth and value of Christ, of God, in the face of who? Jesus Christ. The place of, of, of supreme glory expressed in our day, in our creation, inside this universe, is the cross. That's what it says. He has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So eternity, gospel redemption, means that we are a gathering of Christ's followers who have been redeemed, brought back into relationship with the eternal God for the gospel through the gospel, for God's glory and our joy. All that's been fractured and broken in my relationship has been reconciled. We are now worshiping and restored into right relationship with him. God-centered, Christ-exalting worship. Back where we started. And someday God will consummate that, and that's what we'll be doing for eternity. Therefore, Practically speaking, everything we do as a church, all the ministries here at this church, everything we do goes through that lens, bringing him glory through the gospel of redemption. Every method we use, ministry, endeavor, community groups that meet, every sermon that preach must be done to make much of God in Christ. He is the hero of every narrative. It's not David with the five stones. It's not Moses with the staff. It is Christ and him crucified. That's all we got here, your sin and Christ's forgiveness. And that never gets old. It never gets old. So that as we proclaim the gospel, as we are making much of Christ, who died in our place, took the wrath we deserve, so that we can together behold and delight in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who becomes our greatest treasure. That's what we're about. That's the good news that drives us. That is the heart of all that we do. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him. We realize that living on mission with him is joining him in his pursuit of people, just like he pursued you, to demonstrate and declare the gospel and to make disciples. We're a gospel-centered church. Everything evolves from around that. The gospel never gets old. And every follower of Jesus Christ, if you're here and you belong to Jesus and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be reminded like I need to be reminded. We've been reconciled not to sit, but to go, to live on mission. There's a sentness to a church that we are to go to make disciples, introducing people to Jesus. One of the things you'll hear often here, and I hope you do, is that every single disciple, every single child of God is a missionary. We try to even stay away from that term, although missio dei sent in, in Latin. But what we don't want us to get into this mindset, and some of you have been a Christian for a long time, you know this, where the missionaries are those people. 
you know, we got the wall, their picture, and, and we have strings that point. Those are the missionaries. We want to get away from that. We call them global partners. We do it on purpose. Because it's not just what they're doing, it's what you're doing here. Every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is sent, missio, sent, into the culture, engaging the culture for the cause of the gospel. Looking to love people, to demonstrate the generosity of Christ and love them and declare to them to turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So a missionary, you and I, and those globally around the world, are always looking to take the unchanging gospel and look to incarnate it, in other words, to live it out, embody it, and demonstrate it, and declare it in a particular culture for the cause of Christ. So we do it differently here in Glenmont than they do in India. When we send global partners to different countries, they learn the language, they learn the culture, they learn on what's going on so that they can ask questions, so they can learn people's hopes and dreams. We're going to talk about this more next week. They learn all that stuff, and then they sit back and they say, how can I connect Jesus to that? You know that, some of you young guys probably don't know this, but there was a track years ago, Peace with God, Billy Graham. It was made during the war. What was on everybody's mind? No peace. It worked today, actually, pretty good, I would think. Peace with God. So we're not changing the gospel. We're looking to incarnate. We're looking to declare it in a particular culture. When the church of Jesus Christ, a a, a true, genuine church, does not have sentness, mission, at the heart of it, declaring and demonstrating the gospel, it's not a New Testament church. You see that all over the book of Acts. Okay? Which means, not only we are to make disciples by declaring the gospel redemption, it's important because connection with God is most important, but it's also the same gospel, and we'll go to our second part here, it is the same gospel that transforms us. This is very important to me. I know the first one seemed very important. They're all important, I know. But this one is personal. I'm going to share with you a story. Don't tell nobody. When I became a Christian... I came from a very dark place. I really did. And God shone his light of the glory of the gospel, opened my heart to receive Christ, and I seen his beauty and fell on my knees. That's what everyone does when they see the beauty of Christ. They fall on their knees and they receive Christ. What happened to me, though, is I began to really get into the scriptures. I began to learn a lot, and I began to study a lot, and I became more and more critical of others. I became more and more critical of others. I was almost going back to trying to justify myself before God, kind of going backwards to to self and corrupted worship. You know, I I had these rules and these regulations that although I was saved by grace, by the love of God, I, I knew that. I knew that it wasn't me. I knew that God had forgiven me in the moment I received Christ. I knew that all my sin and brokenness was forgiven. I got that. But as I began to grow and study and began to have more and more of these, these rules and regulations, what I expected everybody else to do, some of you can relate to this, don't kid yourself, right? So I had this kind of self-worship, this kind of way in which I was falling back into, if I do these things, Bible study, giving of my time, all good stuff, I do these things, it went into this sort of self-justification, you should do better, look at me. Martin Luther said it perfectly. He said, the principle of religion is the deep default mode of the human heart. Remember, the gospel is I'm loved, I'm forgiven, Christ died for me, I got his righteousness, therefore I will respond in obedience. That's the gospel. Religion is the opposite. I, 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 in order for me to be loved and accepted and forgiven, I must obey. There's a big difference between the two. One is I am saved, received, loved, forgiven, I'll obey. The other one is if I keep obeying and do the right thing and just keep reading my Bible, doing the thing, God will accept me. 
Martin Luther also said, which I, I thought this was very good, the heart continues to work in that way, working toward acceptance, working toward forgiveness, looking at other people after the conversion of Christ, after becoming a disciple. Though we recognize and embrace the principles of the gospel received by faith, by grace alone, our hearts are always trying to go back to the work mode of salvation, which leads to deadness, pride, strife, ministry, ineffectiveness, end quote. May that never happen to us. May that never happen to us. May we never think and act as if we are better than others, that somehow we can earn God's love and grace. We will be a people driven by grace through faith in the gospel. And it is the gospel of grace that changes our identity and transforms our hearts. It's all over the New Testament. I'll show you in a couple of places. So we believe that our identity changes. We believe that we were once in darkness and we are now children of, of God. Again, Colossians 1, delivered from darkness, transferred to the beloved son. Second Corinthians, any man be in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. That has huge implications. It means that once we were separated from God, seeking our, our personhood, our value, our worth, in things, in created things, because of sin, Genesis 3, and now in Christ, he says we're a new creation. We have a gospel identity. We are now one with Christ. We belong to him. We are loved. We are forgiven. All the things we need as a person, everyone needs to be loved except in matter. And all that is now given to us in Christ. So rather than pursuing even marriage, even good things, to fulfill that void in my life of needing love and acceptance and value and worth and that I matter, now it's in Christ. In Christ is the foundation of all those things. Okay, you follow me? That's the new gospel identity. It's restored when we come into faith in Jesus Christ. But how does that change us? Romans 8 tells us that God has foreknown us, predestined us to be conformed to his son. How does the gospel, the grace of the gospel, change our identity and the same grace of the gospel transform our hearts? Let me tell you what Dr. Tim Keller loves to say, and I, I, I love this quote. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just entrance into the kingdom. I've now been saved. I've got a new identity. Forgiveness of sin. But it's the way we make our progress. It's the way that we get changed or sanctified and transformed the gospel is the way we grow it's the solution to each problem the key to opens every door the power through every barrier end quote so yes we need to read our bibles yes we need to go to church yes we need to fellowship yes we need to be in community group yes we need to live on mission we need to do the hard work of sanctification but if that's all it is if all you see it as just shut up read the bible and do what it says if that's all you see after a while after a while, your heart's going to become like my heart. It's going to be dead. It's going to slip into this idea of work-based salvation. So what are we to do? We are to obey. But we are to obey through the good news and the grace of the gospel. So how does that work? That's what this is all about, gospel transformation. Uh, gospel transformation. I'm going to give you a couple things. We're going to hit them hard and move on so we can end, okay? A life, listen, a life built on self-salvation, doing hard things so that God will love and accept me will turn into a heart that's self-righteous, judgmental, and critical. But a life that is shaped by grace, by the gospel, 
in obedience to, the, to Christ, will be generous and loving and gracious and joyful and won't be critical of others. See the difference? How do you know? Let me tell you. Uh, we're in Galatians 2. I'm going to have you put Titus up in a little bit. Galatians 2. Let's say you have a problem with discrimination. Don't raise your hand. It could be color. It could be work ethic. It could be educational. It could be where you live. I don't know. There's a million different ways to discriminate people. And it's sin. Peter, the apostle, discriminated. Galatians chapter 2. Peter was hanging out with his Gentile friends, as I like to say, eating pork chops and drinking milk. But Peter was confronted by Paul. Chapter 2, verse 11. Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. James came from the Jerusalem church, his fellow Jews. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Discrimination, racism. Fearing the Jews or the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray. Peter is confronted by Paul, and Paul doesn't say, you know what the law says, love thy neighbor. He could have. He could have said, you know, why are you not listening to the Ten Commandments? He could have brought the law, but he doesn't. Look what he says in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct, how they were living their life, the way they expressed who they were, their conduct, their walk, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I I confronted Peter, Cephas. If you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What he's saying is, you came to faith through the cross. You became a child of God through the cross. The fulfillment of Abraham and Adam and all the covenant promises of the Old Testament that have now been fulfilled in Christ, you came the same way through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How dare you turn your back on someone else? It's not consistent with the gospel. You're not walking in line and step with the gospel. He's saying to Peter, listen, all of us, Gentile sinners or Jews, all deserve hell and damnation, but God in his love and mercy and grace saved us. There is no difference at the cross. No matter who you are, no matter what race, tongue, tribe, we all go to the same place at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. No matter how much you've done. So racism out the window. Money. Paul talks about money. He says in 2 Corinthians, he basically, he's saying, listen, I could tell you to give money to the churches that need help, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know what Paul turns to? The generosity of the gospel. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, give me money, I'm coming through, I need to collect some money because there's some churches hurting in Judea. That's why he was going on this mission trip. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even turn to the law and talk about tithing. You know what he says? You know the generosity of Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor for you. You know the generosity that he has done for you, saved you by grace through faith and out of love for you. You know all what Christ has done. He gave everything for you. How could you not give? How can you be cheap? Be generous. Christ has been generous to you. We look at relationship, Ephesians 5. Guys, if I tell you love your wife, because you're stupid if you don't, that's true. But I'd rather say love your wife as Christ loved the church. He loved the church so much that you're saved by it. Love your wife because Christ has loved you. 
Love her as Christ loved the church. And now if we can go back to Titus chapter 2. I love this one. I'll, I'll end here. I just love this one. This is my favorite. Pastor uh, Scott preached on it the, uh, the other day. This one speaks so directly to the gospel-changing transformation in our lives. Not simply by obedience, although we need to obey. Okay, I'm not saying don't. I'm saying what's the motive? This speaks directly to it. Look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. All right, stop. Grace, the grace, the mercy, the kindness, the love God has given me. I don't deserve one thing. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? It says, training us, the gospel of grace brought salvation, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, but it also trains us to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see that? Being trained, being taught, learning, saying no to this and yes to that. Does Paul use the law? He could, and it would be right. But what does he say? He doesn't say, listen, you ought to do right because people are going to look at you funny. Or you need to do right because you don't know how you're going to come across. Or you want to look good. He doesn't say all that. He says, the grace of God has appeared. It is the grace of God that teaches us, saying no to this and yes to that. It is the love of God that says, don't do that and don't do that. It is the love of God that is training us, the grace of God that is training us to be more like Jesus. To be less selfish. Jesus is dead. Listen. If you see the glory of Christ, if you see the beauty of Christ, if you see all that you were saved from, if you see all that you have been saved from, why would you go about living the same way? You wouldn't. You'd be in love with Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey me. But it's through the gospel. Not simply because he said so, although that sometimes you just got to grin and bear it. But for the long haul, family, very important. The gospel transforms our heart. Discrimination. He accepts me, loves me, loves all tongues, tribes, and accepts me at the cross. How can I discriminate others? How can I lack generosity? How can I lack generosity when God gave us his only son, the most precious and valuable gift anyone could receive? How could you refuse to forgive other people when your sin deserves eternal punishment and yet God freely forgives you? How can you be impatient with others when, oh my word, God, please be patient with me. How can you seek to be satisfied and filled for the longing of your soul from other things when the greatest treasure, incalculable worth in the entire universe, Jesus, is in you by faith? How can I, who deserve to be judged and yet receive forgiveness, go around critically judging others? We saw that last week. How can I be unkind, vindictive, and bitter when God is kind, merciful, and forgiving of me? Do you see? Do you see how the gospel changes everything? Can I tell you, listen, you need to forgive because that's what God wants you to do? Yes. But I like to say you deserve to go to hell and burn eternally in everlasting torment away from God. But out of love, out of sheer grace, he rescued you and forgave you of all your sins. What's your response to be? Forgive other people. That's what, that's what the gospel is. How can you be a self-righteous jerk and look down on others when your righteousness and filthy rags are nothing to God? He clothed you with Jesus' righteousness. Do you see the gospel that saves us is the gospel that transforms us. 
We exist for the glory of God by living on mission with him through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. Our eternal God did not sit back and, hey, when you make it, you get back to me. You find your way. But he sent his son, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, and brings us back to a relationship with him. And that truth of the gospel needs to permeate every area and sphere of your life and of this church. We are a people on mission, declaring the glory of God through Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what we're all about. Father, Lord, may we stay focused on the mission. May we always be at the place of humbleness, of gratitude, uh, of confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. And may we always look to love, care, and be generous as you are to us with others around us. So Father, help us to continue to press on not only in this world with the truth and demonstrating and declaring the gospel, but our own lives. May we look at the sin, the brokenness of our own lives and look and apply the gospel truth to it so that you can have your way with us and transform us to be like your beloved son. Father, I know at times that could be a slippery slope. We must obey. Teach them, it says in Matthew 28, all that I've commanded you. But Lord, may we walk with gratitude and humbleness and thanksgiving because of what Christ has already done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.